Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lansma. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by, doc- by Dr. Loy and colleagues entitled Lung Ultrasound to Monitor Extremely Preterm Infants and Predict BPD, Multicenter Longitudinal Cohort Study. I am joined today by the senior author of the study, Dr. Daniele De Luca, who is the Associate Professor of Neonatology and the Division Chief of the Division of Pediatrics, Transportation, and Neonatal, Neonatal Critical Care at the South Paris Saclay University, and is also the President-Elect of the European Society of Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care. Uh, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. So, you know, a lot of us who are not neonatologists have at least have heard of bronchopulmonary dysplasia and its association with preterm birth. But for the benefit of our listeners and as well as myself, I was hoping you could at least explain, you know, briefly the difference between bronchopulmonary dysplasia, respiratory distress syndrome, and chronic pulmonary insufficiency of prematurity. Yeah, you're right. Well, you know, BPD, bronchopulmonary dysplasia is a really complex and multi-phased disease. Basically, uh, now we know that it's consisting of a sort of a uh, deranged alveolarization. So basically the lung development that was supposed to be done in utero in the mother's womb is going to be somehow disrupted while it's happening in the extra uterine life. So in the incubators, let's say so. So uh, these lungs are not well developing, not correctly. And they are assuming somehow uh, the mechanical characteristics of uh, COPD, so very high resistances, relatively low compliance, uh, and anyway, uh, even with some injury in terms of uh, vascular and alveolar coupling. So sometimes even with pulmonary hypertension associated to bronchopulmonary dysplasia. RDS is conversely very, very easy from a physiopathological point of view. RDS is the more common um, respiratory disorder of, prem- of preterm babies and is only uh, occurring in the first days of life, in the first one, three days of life, and it mainly due to the primary congenital surfactant deficiency. So you give them surfactant and that problem is over. But then if the baby was born very, very uh, prematurely, then again, his lung or her lung must grow up. And this is gonna take several weeks. And unfortunately, the trajectory of this growth may not be completely normal. So BPD is defined by a sort of a label that is given classically at 36 weeks post-menstrual age, right? But since it's a disorder of the lung development, it's not going to be on off. You cannot just have BPD today and not having it yesterday or, or, or tomorrow, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a continuum, let's say. So now we know that if a baby is going to develop BPD, is going to develop BPD even pretty early, not in the first day of life when 
there is RDS, but anyway, in the first days of life. So here it comes the concept of CPIP, which states from chronic pulmonary insufficiency of prematurity, meaning that a pregnant baby is born, got RDS, is out of RDS thanks to surfactant, CPAP, and so on, but it's anyway unable to breathe all alone. It needs CPAP, it needs non-invasive ventilation, it needs oxygen, and so on. And this, along the days and the weeks and then the months, is CPIP, which can eventually be labeled as BPD if the baby at 36 weeks uh, respects, fulfills the criteria for BPD, but in more severe cases, may also continue on on the time. And so these babies are one year corrected age and sometimes two years corrected age can still have some respiratory needs and some respiratory morbidities, which clearly is due to CPAP. Your study is trying to determine an early recognition of BPD. And so what, what's the potential advantage of recognizing it early? Like what would we do differently? Probably uh, in the past, there was no advantage. So now we have to uh, see a little bit uh, more far, let's say, because we start to have, or we're gonna have anyway, some drugs, some potential drugs to treat BPD, which so far has been unfortunately untreatable. So, so far, the only things that we had was vitamin A to be given since the uh, very early days of life, because vitamin A has indeed a small but significant effect on the uh, promotion of alveolarization. And that's what we need, that's what we, we had. Now we are studying IGF-1, which is in a phase three randomized clinical trial all over the world, and it seems quite promising. We're gonna study stem cells. So the stem cells infusion for BPD, which is also promising. And eventually some other groups are also studying the intratracheal administration of steroids uh, and mix it with surfactant as a sort of a carrier. So what is a little bit fuzzy is that we have promising therapies, but we do not have a clear tool to tell us who's gonna have higher risk to develop BPD and eventually to develop chronic lung morbidities even after the BPD label at 36 weeks. And on top of that, uh, even more importantly, we do not have any tool that is able to describe in a serial way the trajectory of this baby. Meaning, okay, right now, today the baby is like that, is very sick. Uh, then I give him stem cells, I give him IGF-1, I, I, I give him whatever you want, and I'm gonna see if there is any difference, there is a different trajectory. So this is really a job that could be done by Lang ultrasound because it's an imaging tool that is very easy to be done, can be done serially in a completely non-invasive fashion. And if I can say so, is also answering uh, an unmet need, which is in general, the need to have an imaging tool for BPD because so far we didn't have any. Surely you can do CT scan, you can do MRI, but these are uh, you know, very much cumbersome, even invasive, not available for everybody. So you know, they're still considered a little bit more research tool than actually clinical imaging tools. Yeah, and I would also agree with the, um, the thought that since ultrasound is perceived as being so safe, I would imagine a lot of uh, parents would be much more likely to uh, support ultrasound repair. Absolutely, and on top of that, there is no radiation clearly, as you said, but on top of that, you don't need to move the baby. I know that there are big NICUs having, um, you know, MRI inside the NICU or CT scan machine inside the NICU, 
but these are really an handful. The 99.9% of NICU worldwide do not have this type of facilities. So you have to take the baby with the incubator, eventually with the ventilator, uh, move it on another place in the hospital. Uh, most often, this is a mess. Uh, with lung ultrasound, everything is really at the bedside. Well, let's let's talk about your study. So what sort of patients did you study? We actually concentrated on extremely uh, preterm babies below or equal 30 weeks gestation, which are, by the way, those are higher risk to develop BPD. In a, let's say, modern NICU, uh, those uh, beyond 30 weeks are have a virtually zero risk of BPD. And you ended up doing serial lung ultrasound on these patients. Can you describe the technique that you used? Technique is very uh, easy and standardized. Actually, we scanned the wool thorax on both sides, okay, in a standardized way, looking at the anterior, upper anterior, lower anterior, lateral uh, lung field. And by looking for each field, both transversally and longitudinally, with the, uh, with, with the probe. So doing an average of what you see actually in that particular lung zone. Then this one that I just described has been the first neonatal lung ultrasound score that has been adapted from the uh, lung ultrasound score in adults. And we published it the first, uh, first time in, in, in JAMA Pediatrics in 2015. But that particular score was originally designed to be used in neonates in the very first days of life, right? So when the baby, is going out of the mother's womb and is placing into the incubator. And as you can imagine, it was in a liquid environment before. So it was not yet significantly submitted to the effect of the gravity. So in the first hours of life, it's difficult to uh, understand what are the dependent and non-dependent uh, lung zones. But since we were aiming to scan babies several days of life and even weeks, as you said, those babies were clearly in the incubator for quite a long time, even positioned by the nurses in different positions. So uh, there is an effect of gravity. I mean, it was understandable, it was logical to uh, imagine an effect of gravity on the lung. So this is why we extended the original lung ultrasound score, also looking at the posterior zone, so the upper posterior and the lower posterior zone, exactly with the same technique, and uh, when we uh, look at the uh, posterior lung zones, we call it extended LUS, extended lung ultrasound score, which is going to give, was supposed to give, and actually is giving a more a comprehensive uh, description of lung aeration, also taking into consideration the uh, posterior lung zones. That, that's great. When, when you started uh, looking at these lung assessments, you were going to try to correlate them with uh, outcomes and other markers of severity. How, what was your analytic plan? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question because, uh, as you probably know, lung ultrasound scores, at least in adult medicine, have been validated or anyway correlated with a number of measures, right? So with CT scan, for example, with lung mechanics, or even with, with um, more invasive measures uh, and, 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 and also some computerized analysis of the images and so on. Most of these uh, measurements are clearly not available in NICU care because the baby are so fragile, are so tiny, and you don't have all this. So we planned to somehow validate um, the lung ultrasound score, which had been already validated in 2015, but well, anyway, we wanted to do that again in that particular population, and the extended lung ultrasound score against gas exchange measurements, which are, if you want, uh, which represent the uh, more important and also the more common way to describe lung function. 
So to do that, we serially measured uh, blood gases in a non-invasive uh, non way with non-invasive transcutaneous devices that are very well known and validated in neonatal care. And so we calculated all the complex oxygenation metrics and even ventilatory metrics, so CO2 and so on. And on top of that, we also calculated, um, let's say, a worker briefing score, which is a well-known clinical score describing the worker briefing, so the dyspnea, the baby is subjected. Although all these babies were under CPAP or any sort of non-invasive ventilation, they can have dyspnea, they can have worker briefing despite that because of the uh, uh, ongoing CPAP. So basically, we plan to correlate our findings together with the lamp function and the worker briefing. You know, there's so many parameters that you can look at, and you looked at gestational uh, age and you know birth weight. One of the reasons you had excluded that was because it's so uh, uh, collinear, I guess, with um, gestational age. Were there any other important measures that uh, you wanted to analyze that you couldn't uh, couldn't include because of those same limitations? Yeah, you're right. Uh, birth weight has not been included in all the uh, multivariable models because it's extremely related to gestational age. So they are multicollinear and you, you have to choose either one or the other. Usually gestational age is supposed to be uh, somehow more important unless you have a, a lot of small for gestational age babies, which we do not have. So we've chosen, we have chosen um, uh, gestational age. But you're right again, um, uh, BPD is a complex multifactorial condition. So Clearly, gestational age plays a role there. And in fact, we demonstrate that by combining the lung ultrasound score with gestational age, the predictive power is also increasing. But there may be others. There may be other factors. For example, uh, if a baby got any uh, ARDS or sepsis or transfusion or other complication related uh, to the prematurity during its journey, or for example, uh, if the baby uh, got uh, uh, PDA and a lot of fluids, you know, all these are possible factors that could impact. But clearly, as you can imagine, it was not possible to study all that in a, in a project that was originally designed to verify the first step, the uh, validation and the predictive power of the lung ultrasound, which is really the novelty of the project. Um, the other, uh, let's say, variables are known to be associated with BPD, and eventually we can ask to uh, uh, study what is the interaction with the lung ultrasound findings in future studies. And, and so, what what did you end up finding? What was your uh, what were your results? We uh, find out uh, a couple of very interesting things. First of all, uh, the lung ultrasound score, and even more, the extended lung ultrasound score are able to predict the occurrence of BPD at 36 weeks gestation, um, post-conceptual age, as early as seven days or 14 days of postnatal age. That's extremely important because this way, uh, as early as seven or 14 days, you can actually be able to see if that baby is going to be a potential candidate for one of the future drugs, the future therapies that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. And the second important point is that at any time point, 7, 14, 28, 36 weeks, anyway, the lung ultrasound scores are able to describe the oxygenation. So more generally, the lung function of the baby. So this means that you can actually do your lung ultrasound serially in these babies and, have, and, and see that what you see, your lung ultrasound findings, 
will be describing the lung function of your baby. So you can actually somehow measure uh, the benefit of your intervention, the non-invasive ventilation that you just titrated, your aerosol or your budesonide or whatever, by looking at the lung aeration and actually verify if your intervention done one week before or five days before or, or two weeks before is going to improve uh, the baby's condition or not. You know, that's really impressive. I was uh, impressed with how tightly correlated it was, not just with, you know, some of those other uh, markers that you mentioned, but also simple things like PF ratio, oxygenation index. I'm curious, like, what do you think was probably the most valuable association out of all of those? Well, this is difficult to say. Uh, it's actually a question that we ask it ourselves because we told that uh, originally we told it was only about the uh, oxygenation. And then we found out also something about the uh, ventilation, some carbon dioxide. Uh, I believe that this would eventually need a um, larger study to be clarified. And it would be interesting to see if actually uh, the language of score is more you know, related to the oxygenation or the ventilation side. Um, otherwise, by definition, amongst all the um, uh, oxygenation metrics, the oxygenation index is the one that is more commonly used in neonatology. And I personally prefer it because it's giving us sort of a more comprehensive picture of the oxygenation because it's actually taking into consideration both the FiO2 and the mere wear pressure uh, given to the baby and the PaO2 you got in exchange for that. So, since um, in neonatology, babies are ventilated in several ways you know you have conventional modalities and then you have neva and then you have high frequency oscillator ventilation and then you have jet ventilation and so on the mere wave pressure is representing a sort of a uh, let's say unique picture in the irrespective of, of the type of ventilation you're using and so oi is the only one that is actually giving us a more comprehensive picture of oxygenation while pf ratio and the gradient and the the ratio are a little bit more limited in this regard did you have any patients that were lost to follow-up, I guess, in the short period of time? All of them survived, all of them got uh, imaged, or how did you deal with that? We didn't have any die because any died patient because we uh, originally decided to exclude the babies that were actually dying in order to maximize the chances to have a, a complete follow-up. We actually had some uh, loss of the follow-up, but not so many. So basically, uh, the, the database was more or less complete. And you found that the lung ultrasound scores and the extended lung ultrasound scores correlated pretty well with a lot of these clinical uh, indicators of gas exchange, including like worker breathing, uh, PF ratio. I'm curious what you think the additive value of ultrasound has over those traditional clinical indicators. What's the advantage of doing the lung ultrasound? Well, there are many. First of all, um, you um, to calculate the oxygenation metrics, you either have to do a blood gas or to use transcutaneous devices as we do, but these are not so common. And uh, even some people are a little bit worried about the fact that they can warm the uh, pre baby skin, although this is usually transient and so on. While everybody, every single NICU in the world has a lung ultrasound, well, as an ultrasound machine. Okay, this is used for other purposes like echocardiography or brain ultrasound, but can indeed be used also for lung ultrasound. And the second point, if you want, is very much um, visual and psychological, if you want, because for the first point in time, you are able to visualize the lung and not only have some numbers on a piece of paper giving you PaO2. You're visualizing the lung and you can actually see how it's moving and how it's um, being opened up by your ventilation. 
or not being it up by the ventilation because it's not sufficient. And this is something, believe me, that uh, it's uh, unavoidable. Once you started to see into the lung, then you, you wouldn't stop it. You, you wouldn't uh, anymore uh, guide your ventilation without having a look at what is happening over there. And this is what we do by titrating ventilation by lung ultrasound. And this is also why I told you that I can foresee uh, in the future selecting patients for experimental new therapies according to the lung ultrasound findings. You know, I'm, I'm curious about what your thoughts are regarding some of the physiologic effects of other parameters that uh, might have on lung ultrasound, you know, as, as you've experienced clinically, like for example, how might vaginal delivery as opposed to cesarean section affect uh, the day zero ultrasound or whether or not positive pressure ventilation might lower the LUS? Yeah, you're right. That's, um, that's important. What well, we know that anyway, um, usually babies uh, born by C-section, they have a higher amount of alveolar fluid, you know, compared to the classical vaginal delivery. There are some very beautiful papers by Douglas Bank and other friends over there in, in, in Melbourne who actually studied that at one, five, 10, 15, the very first minutes of life. So this may be impacting anyway, the very early moments of life. Not actually sure that it's actually impacting um, for very preterm babies as much as for bigger ones, or anyway, after the first hour, the first few hours of life, where anyway, you know, you give them CPAP and CPAP is anyway uh, favorizing the, uh, the fluid reassertion. And uh, uh, surely uh, it has no effect at seven days or 14 days or even beyond when uh, the, uh, this uh, fluid reassertion is already done. And anyway, we are facing a completely different process, which is the uh, uh, chronic derangement of alveolarization and so on. Conversely, regarding the CPAP effect, well, this is very well known because anyway, let, let's say more generally, uh, midway pressure rather than CPAP because you can use CPAP or you can use a more complex uh, non-invasive respiratory techniques. But anyway, the greater the midway pressure, well, the more open it will, or at least should be the lung. So that's the principle of alveolar recruitment. And uh, as I told you, we can guide it and we actually do that. We guide it by lung ultrasound. And usually the bigger the uh, minimum pressure you give to the baby, the more open it, the more aerated will be the lung. And so you will get more A-lines and you will lower your lung ultrasound score. This is a common experience. And uh, if you cannot get it, well, this means that you are in trouble because the, the, the lung is not so recruitable. So clearly, uh, while I'm telling you that, as you can imagine, there are other questions that are going out because then what if we cannot open up the lung? What should we do? And how we can recognize with the lung ultrasound those that are, those that are easily uh, easy to open and those that are not so easy to open? There are many questions actually beyond <laughs> the, uh, the answer that we actually uh, just provided. Lung ultrasound is relatively new in neonatology although it was there for critical care medicine in adults since like 20 years, I must unfortunately recognize that we are a little bit late. So uh, we have a lot of food for toes. Yeah, you know, I, I thought it was remarkable how you found that the lung ultrasound score correlated with bronchopulmonary dysplasia, both on day seven and 14. But what I was curious about, and you'd mentioned this kind of early on, was the potential for trajectory to play a role. We see that in general, these patients tended to improve uh, but I'm curious if I had, let's say, two patients on day 14, one 
that uh, had been improving gradually and the other one that has been the same, you know, since day seven. Uh, does that offer me any useful information? Yeah, absolutely. That's very much important. And it's also nice to, uh, to see that what we describe, it has been already replicated by a couple of papers from Spain and from China and from Italy that have been published in other journals. So actually, what is very much consistent is that those babies that are developing BPD uh, will, not go down, will not go down with their lung ultrasound score. The lung ultrasound score or extended lung ultrasound score doesn't matter, will stay up and will remain a little bit flat somehow, right? So those that conversely uh, will improve and eventually will not develop BPD, they will see the lung ultrasound score going slowly down after seven, but also after 14 days of life. So uh, you are totally right. The trajectory is important. And uh, if we see the lung ultrasound score not changing at all, that's already uh, uh, an unlucky answer, unfortunately. And this is also where the uh, LUS and the ultrasound in general is extremely useful because as I said from the beginning, you can do that serially, you can do that as many times as you want. It's totally non-invasive and it's very much suitable. Well, I think that's really impressive. Uh, what's next for your group? Well, we actually have a lot of ideas. I continue working about that. We are a very uh, pro ultrasound group. Uh, right now we have uh, like three or four uh, projects ongoing. One is to answer about some of the uh, question we, uh, we, we just mentioned it. And now we are also working on the uh, validation with lung ultrasound of some animal models of BPD, which could be eventually useful for, um, you know, basic researches on new drugs. Well, that sounds great. We'll definitely be looking forward to hearing about those. Thank you very much. I, I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Daniele De Luca, for joining us for a great discussion on the role of lung ultrasonography in preterm infants. I think this is a skill that's really easy to learn and is valuable at the bedside, so I'd encourage every intensivist to acquire these skills. Uh, thank you, Dr. De Luca. Thank you very much. Bye. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.